Hi, welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Paul Jay. Uh, we're going to talk about China. We're going to have two guests uh, who uh, agree on so many things, but they have some disagreements about just what is the character of China, and we're going to get into that. Uh, please don't forget the donate button. Uh, we can't do this if you don't donate. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, but also hit that little bell thing so you know uh, when something new comes, although part of YouTube's suppressing of our stories, uh, we've been hearing from viewers that even though they have the bell, they're still not getting the notifications. But if that's the case, let me know. Um, the most important thing is get to the website, sign up for our email list, um, and we will be back in just a few seconds for a discussion, debate about China. So as I understand it, and here's a, a very non-expert take on how development of socialism in China uh, was expected to take place, um, was in the first stage of the People's Republic, uh, it was uh, an attempt to build a fully socialist economy, meaning almost entirely uh, government state-owned. And the Chinese Communist Party would plan uh, five-year, 10-year plans, and, and socialism would develop. Um, after Mao's death, uh, Deng Xiaoping became the uh, preeminent leader and ushered in what have been called market reforms. And this was supposed to be a kind of mixed economy where the state would continue to own important sectors of the economy, but there would be a, a, a market, a relatively free market, to take advantage, I guess, of sort of spontaneous creativity or initiative or whatever it is the capitalist free market is supposed to do, and also uh, an opening up of China in, into the network of global capitalism. Um, this stage was supposed to uh, develop a more sophisticated industrial base, uh, a larger industrial working class, and so on. And then that would eventually lead to a stage uh, of a mixed economy, uh, that, but with more socialistic characteristics and less capitalist characteristics. Um, and that's kind of where we are now, if I'm understanding it correctly. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping is saying that it's time to rein back on, on the power of the billionaire class in China, and it's time to increase e prosperity amongst ordinary people. The, the stage of needing uh, such a free reign of billionaires is, is no longer the same, at least. Uh, of course, some people wonder exactly what does that really mean when so many billionaires are actually in the Communist Party and even... Uh, at senior levels. Um, but I'm left with two questions. Uh, first of all, I'm not Chinese. And so what's my interest in what's happening in China? Well, first and foremost, my interest is, is China serious about climate change policy? Um, is, is there a, a state, a government, is the party uh, really interested in the kind of transformation that would be necessary uh, transformation off fossil fuel uh, to really uh, do what's necessary uh, in the world's second largest economy to deal with climate. Uh, second of all, and this is far more an issue for the Chinese people than it is for me, but in judging China, is the well-being of the majority or ordinary Chinese people uh, getting better uh, in spite of the fact there's a lot of billionaires? Uh, that's what the language or rhetoric coming out of China is, uh, but is it actually happening? Are they on, at least on the way to increasing people's well-being and decreasing the inequality gap? So uh, in a second segment, uh, we're going to talk uh, about um, China's foreign policy uh, and f outside of China's borders, is China's economic relations with uh, other countries um, socialistic in some sort, uh, or is it predatory capitalist? Um, and we'll also get into the accusation, is China an aggressive military power? 
this is uh, the, the language of not just neoconservatives in the United States, but more or less the language of the Biden administration. So joining us now are two friends of the show who, as I said early on, agree on all kinds of things, including I think they would both like to see socialism develop in China, um, but they don't agree on just what's going on now. So first of all, joining us from Johannesburg in South Africa is Patrick Bond. He's a political economist, a political ecologist. He teaches at the University of Johannesburg in the Department of Sociology. And his best known work is Elite Transition from Apartheid Neoliberalism in South Africa. And he has authored or edited more than a dozen major works on the region's political economy and political ecology. And he spent a lot of time looking at the nature of Chinese econ China's economic relationship with South Africa. Now also joining us is a friend of the show, uh, Michael Hudson. Michael's an economist, a professor of economics at the University of Missouri, uh, Kansas City. I believe he's an emeritus professor there. He's a researcher at the Levy Economics Institute at Bard College. And he's also a former Wall Street analyst, political consultant, a commentator, a journalist. And both of my guests have been to China many times and are both spent a lot of time studying what's going on there. So thanks, thanks very much for joining me. Great to be with you. What an honor to be with Michael as well and to explore differences. So, um, so let's, let's, I can't remember now who we said we would start with, but I think we said we would start with Patrick. So, so let me just ask you, uh, start with the, uh, one question, and then I guess we, uh, we'll go into the second, but they are related. Is, are people's well-being, is the well-being of people increasing? Is the inequality gap decreasing, as, as, as being said? And then, we and then later we can talk about whether China's serious about climate. So go ahead, Patrick. Well, thanks, Paul. I mean, I think inequality has clearly been kind of a major problem, and hence Xi Jinping is finding ways to clamp down on this uh, ultra ultra billionaire uh, class. Um, but I think even though there's no question that the level of poverty is much lower uh, than you know in Mao's time, there's just no question. The structural conditions which do uh, lead to a super exploitative um, experience, that is to say, above and beyond regular labor going to the market and being paid a wage, not the full you know, value that's inputted. The super exploitation, that continues. And there's really uh, two ways uh, that this, I think, represents a challenge for anyone arguing that uh, China represents a model. One is the Hukou system, which is the migrant labor uh, reservation in which uh, rural people are about 27% of the urban workforce, but not given full rights. It's very much like uh, Paul and Michael what we had in this country, and still do, a migrant labor system, and it's especially damaging for gender uh, relations because it adds another burden, a social reproduction burden, to keep the man and, of course, the left behind family reproduced at a much lower wage in the cities uh, than would normally prevail. Were there equality? Were there no such uh, restrictions? A second aspect, uh, Paul and Michael, that I that I think we have to grapple with, it's it's the environmental super exploitation. It is climate, a massive amount of implicit subsidies that the Chinese economy is uh, essentially giving its fossil fuel industries. But it's also the conditions of pollution in many of the Chinese cities. Sometimes they've been able to, to for example, during a Winter Olympics or during uh, you know big events, close down factories. But in some of these cities, the air quality is really the worst in the world, along with Indian cities. So where I sit in Johannesburg, we're always looking for ways that this semi-peripheral or sub-imperial layer of countries is grappling with the internal tensions. And I think we can use that word, a word that Joy Mauro Marini, the Brazilian, used to describe this layer of countries where they are super exploitative. Of course, we haven't even begun to talk about the way that um, labor unrest, community unrest, 200,000 protests a year, many in the, about half in the rural areas, mostly over land dispossession, how those are repressed and how a new system of social credit is coming in. And a very final point to begin, China is also driving world capitalist crisis by overproducing. That's part and parcel of being an excessively competitive 
capitalist society in which the exports, which we can come to and talk about because it drives the Belt and Road Initiative, these in turn are doing a lot of damage um, elsewhere around the world to the working class. Okay, uh, Michael, your turn. Well, I think Patrick has described uh, what the major tensions are in China right now. Uh, I had thought that our discussion was going to be is China capitalist or socialist, but we've jumped ahead of that right into the tensions that are there. Uh, and uh, it began uh, with the inequality. And I think uh, uh, Patrick's emphasis on the rural uh, part uh, uh, population of China uh, is important for Westerners to understand because China is now primarily a rural, still a rural country. And the great tensions are how, about how uh, small rural localities are going to finance themselves. And right now, they're financing themselves largely by uh, selling land to real estate developers. And uh, uh, that's led to uh, the Chinese families, when they do uh, get uh, money, the first thing they want to buy is a house for their children, usually for their son, uh, because women tell me that the only way of getting a house is to marry uh, uh, a man whose family has uh, given him a, a house. Uh, and also then uh, to get a car. And uh, if you've uh, driven in uh, Beijing traffic, it's uh, more crowded than New York. Uh, but the very first th uh, thing about inequality is uh, I began to hear that this maybe 14 or 15 years ago when I was lecturing students uh, they all said they wanted to graduate, they wanted to go into the uh, Communist Party, and they wanted to clear up corruption. They're right, uh, what uh, you and Patrick call inequality, they called corruption, because for them, it was a corruption of socialism. And uh, that uh, 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 there was a, a consciousness, certainly in Beijing, that there were really two different uh, philosophies of development in China. Uh, the Beijing philosophy uh, was uh, strongly socialist and Marxist. Uh, Shanghai was where Milton Friedman had been invited uh, to, uh, in the 1970s, uh, to talk to the Chinese leaders to say, uh, you don't want to emulate the kind of Stalinist bureaucracy that you had in Russia. You have to have spontaneity. You have to let uh, somehow uh, entrepreneurs develop something spontaneous. You don't know where it's going to be, but it's certainly you can't plan spontaneous innovation from a bureaucracy down. It has to come from the bottom up. So in the 1970s, I remember I talked to Chinese officials and uh, on one occasion uh, they said, oh, you know, you're a futurist. You worked with Herman Kahn at the Hudson Institute. You worked with Alvin Toffler. Why don't you come to Shanghai uh, at where we have our research institute? And I said, oh, that's great. And especially, by the way, uh, I have a Marxist background. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, you can't come. Uh, I'm just right. <laughs> they said, uh, they don't want, uh, with, if you have a knowledge of Marxism, uh, they're worried you will interfere with party discussions. And uh, we're, all the Marxists we talked about, they're the old Stalinist bureaucrats. We don't want that. We want the alternative. We want to... Uh, uh, develop uh, something else. So I didn't go uh, uh, to China at that, at that time, but obviously uh, the, what they did worked. They, they let a lot of spontaneous uh, wealth be developed, but uh, somehow they'd imagined that this spontaneity would be part of a industrial planning process that would all, everybody would uh, do what Milton Friedman said uh, in the textbooks they would do. They would all make normal profits and no one would get rich off unearned income and no one would really get richer than the other because of the magic of the free market would make everybody the same. Well, already 15 years ago, they saw uh, that's not the same. We've got the local innovation, uh, but there are a lot of people getting rich uh, very often by uh, property in the public domain, very often by monopolies. And we've got to have some way of not, not a mixed economy, but uh, an economy that is dovetailed into uh, an economy that is uh, more more even. And right now, uh, in the last uh, few years, uh, they realize that there's a lot of opposition in the United States to uh, Chinese imports. And uh, they, are, they would like the Chinese uh, 
uh, incomes as they go up, not to be spent on housing to bid up the housing prices, but to buy the goods and services that now these factories are producing and they, uh, so that they can raise the living standards for the home market. I think that that's going to be what the upcoming uh, meeting of uh, the Communist Party this spring is going to be all about. I think they're going to try to uh, push for now it's time to uh, take the uh, private sector economy and make it part of uh, uh, the socialist economy uh, much more. Uh, the focus is really on uh, on real estate and housing. Uh, President Xi has said we don't house, houses are to live in. They're not for investment vehicles. Uh, housing is not a commodity. It should be a public right. It should be a public utility. Uh, so the question is, how is China going to uh, deal with the housing uh, issue? How is it going to deal with the local rural finance issue? Uh, and uh, essentially, uh, how is it going to deal with the billionaires? Well, we've seen uh, how it dealt with Jack Ma uh, and the others. How is it going to be to uh, make it possible to get moderately rich, but not super rich? I think that's uh, the problem that they're going to be discussing uh, and coming out with some plan for in the next few months. So, P Patrick, uh, let's you know, let's start with again what Michael raised right at the very beginning. But I, I think it leads to this question, which is: Is the Chinese Communist Party leading China towards? an increased amount of socialism? Is, is this really socialism with Chinese characteristics, meaning this is the way they're going to get to socialism? Or is this a party that's managing a mixed economy with big capitalist sector uh, and, and a lot of billionaires in the party so that this actually isn't heading any more towards socialism uh, than perhaps a, a capitalist social democratic country, if that? Yes, well, Michael's hinted at some of these um, new innovations around uh, uh, Xi Jinping's control of the elites. Uh, that's uh, especially Jack Ma uh, in uh, Alibaba, but also Pony Ma uh, in uh, Tencent. And so there's a degree to which I'm absolutely delighted to see big data under the thumb of a state, uh, because I'd love to see some other controls on, you know, all the other fangs, uh, Facebook and uh, Apple and, and Netflix and, and Google and, and these these all need to be uh, regulated or you know ideally nationalized. I also certainly agree there's a, a wonderful new development in banning uh, cyber currency. I think that's been very very important to, to stop a kind of overproduction moving into the financialization. Michael already mentioned the real estate speculative bubble that's bursting in several of the big construction companies. And there is a danger that cyber currency, like in the West, will become one of these kind of, you know, bubbles, a place where rich people just park their money and see it grow. And, and then also they've done exchange controls. The main imposition, actually, Paul and Michael, if you recall, the Chinese stock market crashed a couple of times. It was mid-2015 and early 2016. To stop that, exchange controls were imposed. And these sorts of regulations I'm absolutely in favor of. But is that moving to socialism or clever band-aiding of capitalism? When FDR uh, was able to put uh, a Glass-Steagall Act in the United States or a Federal Reserve was established because J.P. Morgan couldn't control all the, the banking uh, crises uh, just over 100 years ago, those really weren't about introducing socialism. They were about taking some of the worst excesses of capitalism and sort of ironing them out. I'll add one other that I had great hopes for, but I'm not sure I do, which is the... The Chinese state is so strong, it can identify the problem, the deep problem of overproduction, massive overcapacity, about one third excess capacity in all the heavy industries. In my view, that comes from a classical way that capitalism is excessively competitive, introduces new machinery to get ahead and overproduces as it's you know throwing off workers. Um, and in that respect, what the Chinese promised was a um, devalorization, a, a closure. Um, the zombie companies running around with vast overcapacity, lots of state support and state banking support, could be gradually managed and closed down. I mean, that's much better than a kind of Great Depression. What what you saw, if you recall, in two thousand eight with GM and you know these big crashes of big industrial companies. However, I'm not sure that's actually happening. I think there's been some cheating. So I would put it to you that um, instead of this being a transition to socialism, it's a very skillful capitalist manager 
who knows that there are limits internally. And then when we talk about the international dilemma or about the climate dilemma, I think a lot of what she is going to have to do is displace those contradictions internationally, not actually resolve them. And that would be the big problem we have in other parts of the world where, for example, Chinese investment from the overcapacity is moving outward through the Belt and Road and creating more damage. Uh, All right. So in a word, in a, so in a word, the answer to Michael's question or my question is that you don't think this is a transition to socialism. This is a way to manage Chinese, some people call state capitalism. That's right, Paul. Just in a word, I'm a, a firm believer that transitions to socialism, transitions to a more feminist uh, society, transitions to, to a, to a non-racial society, as we call it here, those have to come from below. And what we also see in China is the awesome capacity, especially with social credit, using Tencent and Alibaba and others to basically surveil everybody and to smash unions and to smash you know, ordinary people as they go about, if they protest, if they're jaywalking even. And I think that means we're not going to see anything from above that's wholesome and you know, progressive until the energies from below are really let loose. Okay, Michael, you go. Well, Patrick was quite right to uh, emphasize the role of finance. Uh, I think that we can clarify the discussion by saying, you know, what is capitalism and what is socialism? Uh, and when people say capitalism, uh, they usually think of the industrial capitalism of the 19th century. And the role of industrial capitalism was uh, radical uh, at that time uh, because it, it's, its uh, job, as Marx pointed out, was to free societies from feudalism. Uh, the common denominator of the physiocrats in France, Adam Smith, uh, John Stuart Mill, uh, Marx, the entire 19th century's development of value and price theory was to say, we want to get rid of the rentier class. We want to get rid of Britain's landlord class. That led to parliamentary reform to uh, take away the House of Lords uh, privileges in London. Uh, and they also uh, want to get rid of the predatory banking class that was uh, inherited from feudal time, when the banks would make loans to governments and then uh, insist in the governments paying them by creating monopolies, like the Bank of England. Well, uh, the whole tendency of getting rid of the feudal class meant uh, uh, cutting costs and uh, the way to cut costs to make an industrial economy competitive, whether you were England or the United States or Germany, was you, uh, to lower the wage that employers, industrial manufacturers had to pay labor. And the way that you lowered it, uh, you didn't want to lower the living standards because you needed to raise the productivity of labor to make it more productive. What you needed to do was lower the cost of living. And you did that by having increasing government uh, uh, creation of the basic living costs. For instance, education, free, public. Health, free, public. That was the conservative policy of Britain's uh, uh, Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Disraeli. You had governments uh, uh, investing in communications, in roads, in canals, uh, in transportation, in radio. The whole idea was to minimize the cost of living by uh, government uh, spending, not uh, privatization. And so by the late 19th century, almost all uh, the uh, economic writers across the political spectrum from uh, uh, thought the world was evolving, cap industrial capitalism was evolving into socialism. There was uh, Christian socialism, there was anarchic socialism on the right, there was Marxism, there was uh, middle-class socialism, there were all sorts of different kinds of socialism, but one way or another, uh, the government was going to end up with the basic utilities. And as you saw developing in Germany and Central Europe, just in the early 20th century, banking uh, was the most important. Well, all of this tendency began to be fought back in, leading up to World War uh, One by uh, the economics, uh, the rentiers fought back. And they said, no, no, landlords are productive, uh, bankers are productive. And uh, uh, they, they were unable to stop the whole movement towards so socialism. And then... This all failed in the West. It, uh, it, you had the Russian Revolution, but all throughout the, the West, you've had a rollback of uh, the socialist idea. It took a revolution in China to uh, establish what 
people had expected to be the evolution of industrial capitalism into uh, socialism. And the distinguishing factor of China vis-a-vis uh, -vis the West today is the West is, has not evolved into socialism. It's evolved into finance capitalism uh, that is predatory, polarizing, uh, and uh, uh, ag uh, aggressive. China, after, since its revolution, has uh, kept the only country that has really kept the banking and credit creation sector in the public domain. To me, that's the most single most important aspect of, uh, uh, of Chinese socialism. And it's, uh, uh, the government has done exactly what uh, uh, the logic of, of any industrial country, whether you're capitalist or socialist, you want to provide public infrastructure at low cost so that you could become uh, the exporter that uh, China's become. So the question is, uh, of the, the qualities that uh, we're saying are positive or uh, negative in China, how many of these are intrinsic to capitalism or socialism, and how much of these are uh, independent from uh, the socialist uh, 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 position? Well, uh, uh, you and Patrick have both mentioned uh, pollution and envi environment. Uh, absolutely uh, no country, I think. Uh, I've heard more talk about uh, the environment in China uh, than any other country because, as Patrick said, uh, the air can get pretty uh, 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 pretty heavy there. Uh, so obviously, China wants to uh, uh, do what it can to clean up the environment, but it realizes that this is a worldwide problem and there's only so much uh, uh, one country can do. Uh, it, and the United States is doing what it can to fight against the fact that China is establishing a uh, industrial leadership position in uh, uh, solar panels and uh, uh, and uh, solar energy. Uh, that's uh, one of the problems. The other problem uh, uh, Patrick mentions is uh, 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 the race problem, the ethnic problem. Uh, I haven't seen that in China, but uh, uh, obviously that's a, a big problem in the West when the uh, where, where the rentiers have essentially. I think the race problem is an attempt by the capitalist class here to try to make the population think of itself, certainly in the United States, in terms of an ethnic identity or a gender identity, anything except the common identity of being a wage earner. Uh, and if you can get people to think of themselves as an identity apart from wage earners, uh, then uh, you're not really going to have class consciousness. Well, in China, there certainly is a class consciousness. Uh, and there's also a consciousness of uh, 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 the rural, uh, 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 urban urban tension that Patrick mentioned, that my students in, uh, uh, I was a, a professor at Beijing University for two years. Uh, and uh, my many of my students came from rural areas and they said, well, we're able to come to Beijing uh, because, uh, have, uh, because we can live here and get a residency requirement because we're students. But then uh, we have a choice. Either we go back to our local districts uh, and uh, uh, work there, or we uh, become a school teacher or something that uh, they permit uh, the residents to have. So there's this tension. This is not really part of uh, a distinguishing feature of uh, capitalism or socialism because you have uh, such tensions everywhere, but it is, uh, uh, China is trying to resolve it in a way that uh, is raises living standards and in that sense is socialist. And uh, the way to do this is you don't want all of uh, the population to congregate in dense cities for the ecological reasons uh, that you have met. I think that's uh, the big challenge uh, that China and every other country faces in common, but it's a common problem. Uh, not, uh, uh, it's a common problem that spans socialism and capitalist economies. Uh, so, uh, Patrick, if I'm understanding Michael's argument correctly, the fact that the state in China has kept finance primarily under the control of the state and the party is an indication that it is part of a transition to socialism. What do you make of that? I mean, did I get? I think I got the argument right. If, if indeed we'd see these forces unleashed from below, and, and I would include, Michael, the, the ethnically oppressed people in Xinjiang and Tibet, I'd include Hong Kong Democrats and the Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions, which was, which was basically just banned. 
I would really say there's a huge amount of, of potential drive towards socialism from below. But I don't see you know, regulation of finance and state finance, especially when so much of the um, financial asset base is bogus, right? It's, it's, it's zombie. And that, let's say, um, unpayable debt that is uh, basically you know, swallowed by all of these uh, uh, companies is a, is a sort of Ponzi scheme, isn't it? I mean, it's not as bad as, a, as the United States uh, pyramid schemes and financial speculation, that's for sure. But still, I think it means, I'll just give you one critical example, Michael, of where I'm worried. If you say the solution to the problem of pollution is emissions trading, set up a, uh, in, a, in, in the five biggest cities, set up uh, carbon markets, right? And if you say, and I'm, you don't, but there are certainly, this is the dominant policy position in China, that we can solve a market problem, excessive pollution, it's an externality, it's not costed into the market. We can solve that with a carbon market, a national carbon market that comes from these, these five big metros. Then I'll dispute that. I'm, I'm not saying you will, but you know that to me, privatizing the air, allowing you know people a right to kind of buy the right to pollute, that's definitely the wrong use of finance. It's moving us into an ultra capitalist false solution. The carbon markets, uh, Paul, you'll know from from uh, Canada in the West, and certainly Michael, if you remember the Chicago uh, you know climate exchange and uh, the European Union's emissions trading scheme has just zigzagged all over the show. These are not ways to solve the problem. They're ways that we really have to dispense with. And I would say that, you know, Michael makes a point at the end of his, his last comment. If the United States, Europe, Japan, the, you know, Canada, the, Australia, Saudi Arabia, the big Western polluters find this layer, China in the lead, starting in 2009 in the Copenhagen Accord, which basically means they make the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the annual UN conference, their party. This is the imperial and the sub-imperial polluters coming together. And they are just, again, this year in Glasgow, promoting carbon markets. They're failing to make the emissions cuts that will basically allow civilization to continue. So we really are talking about a, a capitalist West and a, you know, the capitalist fractions of the, of the East and of the BRICS, the, you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, working imperial, sub-imperial climate policy, it could well destroy us all. Before I ask Michael a follow-up, I just want to say something which I meant to say in the introduction. None of this conversation in any way implies that the West, and particularly the United States, is any better, in fact, I think we all three of us would agree on almost every single score, it's far worse. Uh, we're just not talking, we talk so much about how rotten the American system is. Uh, we're not dealing with it in this conversation, but I, I know somebody's gonna be writing in the comments, what about the US? Well, nobody here disagrees, I don't think, uh, both in terms of re real climate action, not just rhetoric, uh, inequality, even on the question of democratic rights, although I do want to get into that, uh, you know, the, the, the substance of real democratic rights is in the United States is based on how much money you have. If you have money, you've got more democratic rights. If you live in, uh, you know, downtown Baltimore, even the Department of Justice said people that live in downtown Baltimore's constitutional rights are violated every day. But we're not talking about the U.S. now. So let me ask you, Michael, on that point that my, uh, Patrick is saying, this transition to socialism, it's not enough to have FDR-ish uh, type uh, regulation of finance. There also needs to be from below a process of workers organizing and making more and more demands for more socialism which I think also requires more democracy to make those demands. Um, and he's saying uh, that given the state of the surveillance state in China, uh, that that's not, it's very, very difficult for people to get organized in that way. What do you make of that argument? Uh, I, I want to clarify what I'd said about finance, uh, 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 which just came up. Uh, when I said uh, that uh, China has kept uh, central banking, money and credit creation in the public hands, it does much more. It means there's no financial class in China. In the United States, you have Wall Street is the central planner for the United States. You have the banks in charge of 
allocating uh, credit and resources. It's a bank credit that has been uh, increasing uh, housing prices here, and to some extent, uh, credit that's been increasing uh, housing prices uh, in China too. But uh, uh, there's no uh, class of bankers that are uh, acting uh, as the way that landlords did in Europe in feudal times down through the 19th century, uh, when uh, the Chinese government uh, uh, will make a loan to a, a factory or to industry, and the factory is unable to pay for one reason or another, or when families are unable to pay, uh, the Chinese can write down the debt. They say, okay, we're not going to say close down the factory and uh, be sold for scrap or gentrify your apartment. Uh, your factory, uh, we, we created credit to put your means of production uh, or housing or whatever in place because we think it's a uh, uh, it's use, useful for the economy. And it, it, we're not going to shut you down just because you can't pay. We're going to write down the debt. Uh, there's nothing like that in the United States. You can't write down student debt. You can't write down uh, the debt for uh, uh, renters or homeowners who've lost their job during the pandemic and are about to face uh, eviction, uh, 200,000 evictions in New York City when the uh, moratorium on evictions uh, during the pandemic expires in a month or two. Uh, you're, you're going to uh, China is free of that class, and the, it is the financial class, the banks and Wall Street, that have sponsored the, the landlord class because most 80% of bank loans are to real estate. China doesn't have uh, the financialization that has been uh, polarizing and undercutting uh, uh, the West. Uh, Patrick sort of segued from uh, this control of finance to promote the economy to uh, the fact that, well, once everybody goes around with cell phones paying their, uh, uh, paying their bills uh, with a cell phone, uh, the government can listen in there just as much as uh, it's listening in the United States uh, and other countries in the West. This is uh, something that, uh, in, uh, that nobody really expected. This is a kind of uh, telephone uh, uh, technology that is, again, universal. I think all the governments are listening in. Uh, the question is, I guess to Patrick Rose, is the government going to use this listening in to say, well, we don't want uh, factory people to organize. We don't want uh, labor unions. We don't want criticism. Uh, it's in the nature of governments uh, uh, to do that, and that's the exact opposite of how China uh, developed with the Let 100 Flowers Bloom uh, dur during it, its takeoff. So uh, this is certainly a political issue as much in China as it is in the United States uh, and in Europe. Uh, I, th I think that's uh, independent from uh, the, uh, the economics of socialism and, and capitalism. It's the politics of government uh, and uh, of the uh, centralizing dynamic of uh, politics. How do you cope with to prevent the, the polarizing dynamic of uh, political uh, power and bureaucracy uh, in the same way that you prevent the financial dynamic and the economic dynamic that's creating uh, billionaires? You have to have uh, checks and balances against this, and uh, all the countries, I guess, are trying to put this in. Uh, I have not been a party to any of the discussions in China of uh, global of uh, uh, pollution trading. Uh, I refuse even to get into it. I think it's an it's it cannot be solved by the market. Uh, and because Patrick's absolutely right, uh, it's appalling to think that the third world could somehow let uh, uh, Goldman Sachs and other uh, Wall Street firms say, look, there's a huge market. We can make hundreds of billions of dollars by selling uh, the right to pollute. Uh, the, the problem is you don't want the pollution. You don't want to sell the rights to pollute and offset. Uh, uh, you, you want to stop the, the, the pollution. It's, uh, it's not uh, something that can be done market-oriented. I don't know whether you can say there's a socialist solution because pr probably the worst polluters uh, uh, after the Russian Revolution, were Russia. I mean, you look what it's done to the uh, uh, to the. Uh, there are no more sturgeons in the black in the Black Sea and the uh, uh, the, uh, the the other seas uh, that they uh, polluted. They just dump uh, everything uh, into the sea. So certainly, uh, it, it's ironic that socialist uh, uh, planning in uh, the Soviet Union did not take account 
uh, of the pollution. And you still have major pollution in uh, the uh, former Soviet republics, like Kazakhstan with its, uh, 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 and Kyrgyzstan uh, with oil, uh, with uh, spills, with uh, uh, gold mining. Uh, so this is, this is uh, uh, it, 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 it spans the entire political spectrum from capitalism to socialism to whatever you want to call uh, these other uh, phenomena. Uh, Patrick, uh, we're getting getting near the end of this segment, and we're just beginning this domestic conversation. And this, but but let me just ask you one question to sort of end, and then I'll give Michael uh, uh, the last word because I think Patrick, you had the first word. Uh, but we obviously have to do more of this domestic conversation. It's far too complicated to knock off in forty minutes. But let me just, as a final question to you. Um, Let's say it's what you said. This is actually a form of managing capitalism as opposed to a transition to socialism. Um, at this stage of human history, is this a, a better form of capitalism? Now, you, you take you take this issue of you know the lack of the right to organize the surveillance state. Certainly, that's part of the equation here of whether it is or isn't. Now, the polling I'm seeing, I was looking up uh, yesterday, There's Harvard has an institute that's been trying to do public opinion polling, and they say it's hard to do. But they say the vast majority of Chinese people seem to support the party and the government, and their life is getting better. And so I don't know what that's worth, but that, that it seems like the, the party seems to have majority support there. Well, and, you know, I, I should just add to Michael's, um, you know, comparison of the uh, surveillance state. The, the difference really is uh, that totalitarian capacity. For example, Michael, if you do violate um, you know, some of the local laws, you go to a protest, you do something that meets official, um, you know, disapproval, well, you'll be cut off from going on a fast train or an airplane. Tens of millions already in the pilot stages of the so-called social credit in which the Chinese Communist Party and the biggest company in Asia, Tencent, which South Africans have about nearly a third ownership in for a historical accident, and Alibaba and, and others. These are these are quite terrifying. And I think if I wanted to, to say, yeah, it's much better to see um, a balanced and let's say, uh, you know, top-down reform of capitalism in the, in the manner we've been talking, Paul, I would give Michael credit, though, to say uh, repressing finance, there's this phrase, financial repression, is very much part of it. And we do feel that here. So in the southern tip of Africa, where China has been very aggressive in financing very corrupt coal-related exports and coal-fired power plants and major high-carbon infrastructure, we were all delighted, and it seems to be genuine, when Xi Jinping last year said uh, that he would no longer allow the Belt and Road to be a site for this displacement of the overproductive, the overcapacity of coal-fired power plants. So he basically used the banks to turn off the switch, which we were about to see turn on of more coal-fired power plants here in South Africa and uh, certainly across the region. So there are little moments where we're delighted to see some of that control because you know, the pressures on the world environment, we're really at the point of uh, nearly no return. And I think my last point on that, Paul, there's about, uh, according to the International Monetary Fund, I would never quote them uh, approvingly, but here's just one example of their attempt to measure how much damage China is doing to climate globally. And they've come up using their carbon price. They price the damage from a ton of emissions at $60 a ton. And their objective is the two degree uh, Paris, you know, objective, not the 1.5 aspiration. So given those two, you know, very serious caveats, they're saying that China is doing about $2.2 trillion of damage per year that is subsidized by the state, implicit subsidies and failure to regulate the externality costs. That's not just for climate, but it's also local congestion, local um, air pollution, um, and a variety of other you know, minor factors. But if you just take climate, I think Paul and Michael, we'd have to agree, and I would not use 50 or $60 a ton. The more recent research suggests it's probably $3,000 a ton. So we're really talking about $100 trillion 
dollars a year, uh, you know, damage, and their GDP is around 15 trillion. So this is really a system that, for the sake of all future humanity, has really got to be rethought very, very urgently. Okay, Michael, you get the last word. Here's the, here's the question. Can so capitalism solve this problem, and, or can socialism solve the problem? Uh, can China solve the problem more readily than the United States? Uh, I'm, I follow the U.S. economy much more than the Chinese economy. Uh, and you look at the U.S. economy, and the most powerful industry is the oil industry, uh, which I uh, worked uh, with uh, for many years. And uh, the oil industry is absolutely uh, uh, runs the government's foreign policy. That's uh, uh, ever since I uh, was on Wall Street uh, uh, that was the case. And the, the foreign policy of the government is uh, the key to American uh, export power and control of uh, its uh, allies or uh, satellites or whatever you call them is oil. Uh, and that's why uh, they've got uh, convinced the Biden administration to let them do the offshore drilling. Uh, to let them uh, uh, do fracking, uh, to promote the Athabasca tar sands, the dirtiest uh, oil in the uh, uh, in in the country, in the world, uh, and to build pipelines to facilitate uh, the Athabasca tar sand uh, pollution. All of this, uh, and I was the economist for IRDA uh, uh, evaluating the Athabasca tar sands back in the 19, early 1970s. Uh, and they knew it was polluted, uh, a pollution at that time. Uh, so I don't believe that solving the environmental problem is possible under capitalism, where the governments are run by the oil industry and the mining industry and the natural re and the uh, banking industry that uh, is uh, essentially merged with the uh, oil and gas industry. The question is, can China solve it better? Uh, it certainly uh, cannot be solved. Uh, in the, uh, as Patrick pointed out, with a market trading. It's not a market problem. Uh, it has to be uh, a problem, uh, from a, a political problem from above. Uh, in America, the, po the politics are run by the polluters. Uh, it, pollution is their product. Uh, I don't think they can solve it. Uh, pollution uh, isn't China's deliberate product, and it doesn't have a, a self-interest uh, in promoting the pollution such as exists in the capitalist countries. So I would hope that this absence of self-interest in uh, promoting pollution and uh, oil and coal uh, would lead it to uh, say, well, our interest is preventing pollution and uh, uh, cleaning up the air in our cities uh, and elsewhere. I think the chant uh, that certainly a socialist uh, government is, the, uh, uh, is a prerequisite for dealing with this problem. And uh, I would hope that China would get the rest of the third world to uh, agree with this uh, in view of the fact that the third world will be, or Southern uh, sphere is, go is going to be the great sufferer from rising sea levels and global warming. And, and you think China is such a socialist government and will, and will can and will do this it has the power to do it and it, i don't see another government that has the power to do it whether it does it or not is uh, the big issue uh i haven't uh, had any discussions about this i'm not a specialist in this all i know is that it has the power and the uh, the other governments are advocating pollution and there's no reason for china's government uh to go along with this i know i know patrick this is like Part of is part of your specialization. So I said Michael could have the last word. No. I'll give you just a really short last word. Yes, I mean, to me, the, the constant question, if you're doing political economy, is uh, a combination of class analysis with obviously gender uh, and ethnic uh, uh, and, of course, ecological aspects. Uh, and there, I don't think there's any uh, pretense that the social forces are aligned to bring genuine socialism, uh, worker control of the means of production, planning and rationalization of all of these problems. And secondly, we're always interested in political economy in the capital accumulation process. So whereas Michael's right that financialization isn't the kind of cancer that it represents in Western capitalism, nevertheless, the overproduction, the excess capacity in so many Chinese industries, especially now that the growth rate is slowing down, but the capacity is there, that really is one thing we can take to the next discussion, Paul and Michael, which is where China intervenes in the world. Does it seem like, say, Europe, 
back in the 1880s, trying to uh, displace its overproduction into new terrains. The one here, Africa, being a particularly uh, tragic victim in many ways. Okay, so that is what we're going to do. We're going to end this segment. As I said, it's 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 uh, pretty much a beginning of the conversation, but we are going to move to the external conversation. What does China do uh, in the world in part two? So thank you, Michael. Michael, thank you, Patrick. Uh, come back for the next segment, and thank you, everyone who's watching. Uh, please don't forget the donate button, the subscribe button, the share button, get on the email list button, all the buttons. Thank you.